everybody and welcome to the Maya Minds podcast. I'm your host George and here at Maya Minds we want to demystify mental health and make sharing mainstream within the exercising and sporting community. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Just before we get started, I want to remind you that here on the My Minds podcast, we do often talk about eating disorders, body dysmorphia, exercise addiction, suicide, and other potentially triggering topics. Usually in the description below, I will write down what we talk about specifically in this episode. That being said, I do hope you enjoy this, but please do be careful. Hey, Sarah, how are you? Yeah, not too bad, thanks. Yourself? Uh, I am good. To be honest, I feel exhausted um my day has been uh it's, it's been one of those days where i feel like every person i know has had like a really like distressing day and everyone's oh, no. been texting me and i'm not very good at setting those like well i'm getting better at setting boundaries and putting things in place to be like um like you know i don't have capacity to to help you right now um, but at the same time like you know they're my friends and i want to help as much as i can so yeah it's quite hard so i feel very tired from that um I'm also, I'm also like, like, I feel like I'm running off adrenaline because this is the first time I've recorded the podcast in, in forever. So oh, cool. <laughs> I'm kind of excited <laughs> to finally get back into it. And excited to speak to you. Nice, nice. Yeah, it does sound like. But how's it, your uh... How's your day been? Yeah, it's been okay. One of those days where you think it's going to be quite chilled. Your diary looks sort of uh, okay, and then like you get emails pop up and yeah, issues that you have to deal with. So. Uh, yeah, just been, feel like I've just been kind of, it's gone quite quick actually, just trying to sort different things out. But yeah, mm. excited to speak to you as well today. Awesome. And what is it you actually do for your job, just for, for, for people listening? So um, there's, I've kind of like, I'm kind of doing two sort of job roles. So um, I've got my, my full-time job, uh, which I've kind of, I've worked in the service for the last three years, is in a weight management service. Um, so I started off as a practitioner delivering um, weight management programs, which are like 12 week um, psychologically informed interventions. And I've sort of moved up in that role to the lead of the service. Um, so that's kind of what keeps me going on a day to day basis. And then I also wear another hat and um, I'm doing sport and exercise psychology alongside that. So I completed my master's in sport and exercise psychology last year and at the start of this year I enrolled onto the next stage of training um, so that I could become an accredited psychologist. So I'm now kind of doing that training route which is an independent route through um, the British Psychological Society. Um, so yeah, I'll, on the side and in my sort of spare time I try and kind of um support people uh by providing psychological services um yeah helping them to kind of learn mental skills that can help with both performance and well-being and at the moment i'm sort of doing that in, in quite a broad context so sort of dipping in to, to work with both athletes mm -hmm. and also um within exercise context as well cool so is it mostly like um, obviously what we're talking about today is going to be kind of exercise addiction and the kind of the dark side of exercise in some sense, but also you do, you do some like motivational stuff and like helping people with performance goals and things like that. So is it a mix of both or do you have one that you do more than the other? And which is your favorite to do as well? I guess <laughs> maybe favorite isn't the right word, but which one do you like enjoy working with the most? Yeah, to be honest, it, it sort of changes um, quite often. So initially, when I kind of chose the career of sport and exercise psychology, my mindset was like, I really want to work with athletes. Like, I really enjoy kind of watching, like, you know, we've just had the Commonwealth Games and I just love all that sort of stuff. And I just thought it'd be like amazing to kind of be, be on that support team and, and help those out, um, yeah, to, to achieve their goals. And then... As I was doing my master's, that's where I got more into the exercise psychology side of things and started to learn more about how we can actually use exercise psychology to kind of support people that might have quite an unhealthy relationship with exercise. And I just became really fascinated with that. So that's pretty much what I did my master's research project on. And it's definitely something that I do want to continue doing. Um, it's just that side is a lot harder at the moment because 
while sports psychology is still quite new, it is definitely a lot more established. Um, and exercise psychology is very much still a, a growing field. Um, it's trying to pay, like make people more aware about like the services um, and, and what we can offer and what's available. So I'm sort of like I say, I'm sort of dipping my toe into different areas. Um, but yeah, I'd love I'd love to sort of work and focus more in in the exercise psychology context. Um, but yeah, it's just kind of finding uh, finding different areas where where I can sort of make a difference and have a positive impact yeah and actually the the exercise psychology is is how I know you because I'm a I'm board member for the for APAN the Applied Psychologists in Physical Activity Network APAN's much um, less of a mouthful and you delivered a presentation at one of our network events which I sadly missed but then I yeah. I saw that you did this um presentation on this topic and I was like oh my god I can't believe I missed this and then I like begged you to speak to me and that's why we're here <laughs> so um yeah I'm excited to, excited to kind of get into it so I suppose it's probably a good good point to actually um get started with what we want to talk about today which is your research that you presented at APAN um mm -hmm. and I think it's what you did for your master's disc is that right yeah that's right so do you want to tell us a little bit about what it is your your research was on? And yeah, yeah, a yeah. little bit of a brief overview for people listening. Yeah, so um, in a nutshell, I investigated the effects of an applied psychological intervention, um, which is called REBT. So that stands for Rational Emotive Behaviour Therapy. Um, and I can come on to talk more about that. Um, so I was looking at how REBT um, can help female exercisers who were at risk of exercise addiction. Um, so when I was doing the research, um, the main research questions I had were to see if REBT helps to reduce the symptoms of exercise addiction, um, whether it reduces um, irrational beliefs, uh, which is one of the key concepts of REBT. Um, and I was also looking to see uh, if it could help to improve psychological distress. Um, so the reason that I wanted to kind of um, do my research in this area was um, due, mainly due to the fact that research with exercising females is lacking. So I was really interested to see if it could be a potential option um, for females that present with exercise addiction symptoms. Um, and I did sort of, I replicated a study that had already been done a couple of years ago where, where they did pretty much the same intervention, but with male, um, males who were showing signs of exercise addiction. Um, but I wanted to extend the study a little bit further by using the measure of psychological distress, which wasn't used in the study that was done with males. Because I've also got an interest um, in sort of mental health and well-being. Um, I've kind of my previous work experience has been in like NHS mental health services, so I was like really keen to sort of see how that kind of goes hand in hand, especially with um, some of the symptoms of exercise addiction, which again I can talk about in a bit more detail later. Um, you know, obviously do go hand in hand with uh, feeling quite distressed. So it was um, really kind of important for me to sort of look at that as a, a measure as well. So so just kind of um, for people who might not be as research savvy, is the, the basic premise is that you had um, a group of women who were struggling with exercise addiction or some kind of like symptoms around that and you took them through a course of this this form of therapy that we'll talk about later on and then you were finding mm -hmm. how that affected their mental health and and what kind of came from that is that a very simple i know i'm butchering it there and you probably hate me for doing that no that's uh, <laughs> is that about right yeah like that pretty much sums it up so there was yeah three women in total and the intervention was used with each of them so they each of them had um six weeks sessions uh, with myself um yeah and then I, I kind of used some questionnaires to kind of measure what was going on for them before the intervention also during the intervention and then afterwards as well amazing also I didn't, I didn't realize you would lead them as well as the researcher you also did the sessions with them that's that must have been interesting yeah was there anything that, that you was, thought um... you liked that that you didn't expect and then and then kind of then kind of became um yeah so yeah didn't expect and then like came, came out of it that you would that was shocked by um 
I think, to be honest, I didn't really know what to expect um, when doing the intervention. Um, so I have had a little bit of experience because, um, like I said, I've previously worked in mental health services. So I've kind of worked with people on a one to one basis before um, in terms of using psychology and using CBT. But this was, I guess, the first time where um, I was actually using this, this specific approach of REBT. Um, I was under like very close supervision from my like master's um, dissertation supervisor. So he kind of guided me through the whole process and we made sure that we sort of met um, a few times before I actually kind of delivered it just to make sure that the sessions were structured how they should have been and I knew what I was doing. Um, but yeah, like so even even from the outset, sort of the first session where I was just kind of getting to know the participants um, and understanding what their sort of situation is, um, I just had no idea what to expect. Um, the way in which I recruited my participants was essentially through um, social media. So um, I asked people if they could sort of complete this online survey and if they were then interested um, to sort of take part in the, in the study, then uh, leave their contact details and I'd get in touch with them. Um, so I guess one thing that did surprise me from the first session is that one of the participants was actually in America. Um, so, so yeah, that was uh, quite interesting, like to kind of uh, be able to actually just reach out to, to people from like all, all over the world. Yeah, amazing. It's really cool that you got to kind of yeah expand to another country and and kind of yeah, so have an impact on them. Hopefully, I, I think I think we'll learn about the results afterwards. I think they were positive from from what I remember. So, um, but I really want to kind of um, before we get into the research, I really want to touch on something else that we spoke about previously when we had our like pre podcast chat. Um, and you said that one of the things that kind of um, played into this research, or at least kind of played into your reasons why you were interested in it was because you've had some of your own personal experience with exercise addiction and with that relationship with exercise. And that's something that I've had my own experience with as well. Um, and I'm interested if it's okay with you, could you tell us a little bit about your own experience? Yeah, of course. Um, so yeah, in terms of my own experience, um, one thing that I should mention as well, and you've probably heard me say a lot, like sort of, um, so exercise addiction is not like currently a condition that's recognized by the two main sort of diagnostic manuals of disorders. So quite often I'll say people who are at risk of exercise addiction or people who show symptoms of exercise addiction, because it's, it's actually quite hard to, to actually prescribe that diagnosis because you do need to do sort of thorough sort of interviews and, and questionnaires as well to understand fully what the symptoms are. So when I talk about my own experience as well, it's it's more just kind of like a self-diagnosis, like I've not kind of gone to a, a clin clinician or anything like that. But um, yeah, I don't really know, to be honest, when it started. Um, like since I was a child, I've always kind of been quite um, active, quite sporty. I used to be a dancer when I was younger, so that took up sort of a majority of my life. So activity was always just quite a big part of my life. I was also playing tennis and I loved like riding my bike. So um, yeah, I think just the fact that exercise has always been sort of an important part of my life may potentially be a factor within it. Um, I stopped dancing when I went to uni, but just continued to play sports. Um, and at that point, I also joined a gym. So I sort of started getting into the, like weight training as well. Um, and I've just been continuing to um, to just kind of like, yeah, make sure that I'm constantly staying active. So I took up badminton after that. And then I've taken up running since it sounds like I've tried everything, which I probably have. Um, so now I'd say running is sort of my like most regular exercise that I do. Um, and in fact, I, I completed my first marathon this year. So it's kind of I started running about uh, three and a half years ago and sort of I guess this probably happens to a lot of people, but sort of just started off with my 5Ks, kept getting better times. So I thought, oh, let's see if I can run a 10K. Um, and then I just kept increasing the distance and sort of going from there. Um, but I think certainly when I was able to, to actually recognise um, starting to have symptoms of exercise addiction was where it was most prevalent was probably during lockdown. So... Um, Whilst obviously lockdown was like really challenging for lots of people for different reasons, um, I did try and take some positives from it as well. So it was great. I felt it was like really great that um, 
that, you know, there was a time where restrictions started to lift and you could go out specifically for exercise purposes. And that was like really encouraged as well for better health. Um, so obviously I was kind of doing that. And then because I was um, adapting to sort of working from home, it also meant that I had a lot more flexibility around my exercise routine. So um, whereas before I'd sort of have to travel to the office, come home, and then I'd sort of go for my run there and I'd sort of have to like fit everything in like quite tightly. Um, and then that was a lot harder in the winter because I don't necessarily like going out running when it's dark. I um, So during lockdown, because I was working from home, I had more flexibility. Um, I started getting into a habit of sort of going out for a run like in between meetings or maybe sort of first thing in the morning because um, I could just sort of shift my day. I could start a little bit later and then I could just finish a little bit later. So my exercise routine changed quite a bit because of that extra flexibility, having more time of my hands. Um, so I started to increase the frequency and duration of my exercise sessions. So again, I may have naturally done this anyway, because like I say, I sort of, I was increasing my distances um, just naturally to see how far I could go. But I think um, with with the extra flexibility and time on my hands, I think that may maybe exacerbated things and perhaps sped things up quite a lot. Um, so, and then, and then it got to a point where I noticed that I was actually starting to fit my life around my exercise routine rather than fitting in my exercise sessions just like where where and when I could um and I think some of it comes down to and, and I do still do this sometimes anyway so like I'm a really structured person I love routine and I guess I like to be in control of things anyway so um I naturally just try to plan things out like what I'm doing each day um and yeah it got to the point where I think I I started to become quite obsessive with the exercise side of things. So I'd like start to write down which days I was going to kind of fit my run in, which days I was going to do some weight training. And, and, and when it was written down like that, it, for me, it was almost like I have to kind of make sure that happens. Like if it's written down, then I have to like stick to that plan. So that's where it, it was, it would be quite difficult. And again, luckily during lockdown, I was generally able to stick to it. Um, but there was def there's one example that I can bring to mind where I sort of um, it was almost like a bit of a turning point for me, actually. But um, so what happened was I'd, I'd sort of planned my day. So because I was doing doing my master's at this time um, and I was fitting that in around my full time work, I was um, generally trying to fit in some study time on a Saturday. So I sort of I planned my day out. I was going to kind of get up, do some studying. Um, for a couple of hours and then go out for a bike ride and then come back and do some more studying. So I sort of, I got up, I knew what I was going to do. I even got into my cycling gear first thing. So I was like, I can just crack on with my studying and just sort of go out straight away and, and that'll all be good and saves me time and everything. Um, so once I'd uh, got got my studying done for the morning, felt quite pleased with that. So I sort of went downstairs to, to go on my bike, um, went to get the shed keys from the drawer and they weren't there and I was just like oh my god where, where are the shed keys so I had a look around I thought oh well there must be somewhere we've obviously just misplaced them so I was just kind of looking around and then I started to get increasingly more anxious that I wasn't going to be able to find them and I thought oh no like yeah what if, what if I can't find them um and yeah basically I, I didn't know where they were so I was like I, I tried to stay a bit calm so I was like sort of trying to retrace my step uh, steps when would we have last used them um and then it like it dawned on me that um my boyfriend last used them to sort of go and take the bins out the previous night and because i think it was sort of autumn winter time um he'd probably put them back into his coat pocket which i've done before a few times as well and he was away that weekend and yeah i just it, i just realized that oh no he's got the shed keys and um there's no way i'm gonna be able to get on my bike so i tried to call him didn't answer tried to call again i must have like um yeah seemed really silly to him um and then text him and i didn't get a response straight away but i, I kind of knew it was like yeah i'm not gonna be able to get on my bike so had a bit of a, a panic or a breakdown. I sort of I burst into tears. I was like, oh no, like this is really what I wanted to do today. It was like, 
like at the time was like it's the perfect day like the weather was really good um it fit in quite nicely because i think i'd done a hard run the day before and i was going to do like a run the day after so it was just like the like the whole routine of it just fitted for me and i was just like oh my god this has been taken away from me so yeah just like i got really upset about it and um yeah, I think it, it probably took me a good, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes to sort of calm myself down. I sort of accepted that, yeah, it definitely wasn't going to happen. Um, and I then tried to basically kind of use my own kind of like psychological skills, um, you know, what I'd been doing with my participants and just tried to think about my own situation and, um, and think about whether I could just try to manage my thoughts a bit better, like, so that I could feel better about the situation and just kind of be more accepting and yeah, just realize that, okay, I'm not going to get on my bike today. Um, immediately like so again um you know a lot a lot of people might just be like okay well i can't go on my bike that's fine i'll just kind of get on with my day and do whatever but immediately i was like okay so what exercise can i do today instead um and like i say i, I kind of thought i shouldn't really go for a run because i've had a few hard sessions so yeah and like in my head i was still like planning okay well what exercise can i do later on and i did manage to fit something in later on but yeah like i said it took me a while to sort of calm down from that situation um just kind of yeah think about things a bit more rashly um so yeah that was kind of one point where i was kind of like i do need to be a little bit more flexible about this because you know clearly that's kind of caused me some kind of distress which uh, yeah i guess could be avoided if i wasn't so kind of regimented and um you know extreme with how i want things to be with my exercise routine um yeah, and I think um, also when when lockdown restrictions started to lift, I then noticed that it was um, sort of becoming increasingly more difficult to sort of try and fit in social events around my exercise routine as well. Um, and I think more often than not, again, I'd try to just kind of, um, I guess I'd prioritize, I wouldn't say that I necessarily like declined any social invitations, but I, I'd say that I probably prioritised like my exercise sessions. So if a friend invited me out for dinner, I'd perhaps make sure I set my alarm an hour early to make sure I could get out for my run like that morning because I know it wouldn't be free in the evening and that, that kind of thing. So I think for me, um, the symptoms can still come and go. And like I say, like the... I do tend to still sort of write down what it is that I'm going to do for that week, just so I know like whether I can fit it in or not. But I, I'd like to think that now I'm a little bit more in control of it and I'm able to adapt a little bit more if something doesn't quite go to plan or if I just do need to take that extra rest day. Um, and just like kind of realizing that I can actually get quite burnt out from it, especially because I'm trying to fit in sort of extra studying and training around my job. Um, so just trying to learn ways to kind of use use self-care to yeah, prevent myself from burning out. Yeah. And thank you for thank you for sharing that. I think that's always the, the I think that's the hardest thing with kind of relationship with exercise and something that I'm struggling with is you you know the behaviors that you're doing and put you know planning out your day and you know exercising are like inherently or they they tend to be very good things and they tend they are actually very mm -hmm. positive in in several different ways you know like having structure in your day and 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 exercising is is good is a good thing in so many aspects um, yeah. but then it's trying to find that measure of when it's a problem and i think you you summed it up nicely um when you said that you know you noticed that you were you were organizing your life around your exercise rather than your exercise around your life mm -hmm. yeah and um i think that's one of the reasons why there is um it's it can be quite difficult to actually do the research around the topic of exercise addiction because people don't necessarily recognize that it's a problem um because obviously there are all of the positive benefits of doing exercise um but it's about trying to uh, help people to identify when that relationship with exercise does actually start to become unhealthy and when actually uh, by like continuing with like maybe a set exercise routine there's actually kind of negative consequences that kind of result from that 
Yeah, exactly. And that's, yeah. One of the things I always talk about on this pod and something I really, I find really fascinating and I'm wanting to do in my research going forward as well. Um, so yeah, something I'm really interested in. Um, and then I also wanted to pick up on, um, you mentioned the kind of, um, I can't remember the word you used, but I, I summed it up as rigidity. Like, you know, the, the rigid idea of you have to do exercise um, today, like no matter what it is, you know, when you couldn't do the bike mm -hmm. anymore, you had to find another way to mm -hmm. do it. And that's something that I think comes up quite often. That's something that I've found in myself is if I couldn't go to the gym, it, it was almost, in, or even, even if I could go to the gym, you know, there's no way I can change things you know if i was if i was in the gym i had to do it a certain amount of reps a certain amount of mm -hmm. sets a certain amount of different exercises and if i didn't meet that then it wasn't good enough and one of the hardest things as well is my goal because i think it's tied to like perfectionism in a sense i wanted this perfect workout and my goal of the perfect workout would change if i ever exceeded it so you know if i did x amount of, i wanted to do x amount of sets but i did x plus one then from then on that was the new standard Standard, and if I yeah. ever dropped below that, so it just becomes input, it just spirals out of control. Is that something that you've experienced? Um, yeah, I guess, um, like, like I say with my running, like I did sort of continue to just kind of keep increasing my distance and like, because when I started off, um, and, and naturally like everyone would find that, you know, you're, you're, you're going to get faster and faster because like your body's starting to do this new thing and it's like getting into it. So yeah, I noticed my time's getting faster. And then when they stopped getting faster, I was like, okay, right, what do I need to do to, to get even faster than this? So like, yeah, even just like doing research and trying to find out like different strategies and different like training plans to kind of help me get faster. And then it was, yeah, I guess for me, it's kind of like always just wanting more and more and more. <laughs> so like what the next challenge is, getting up to that next level. Um, and, and yeah, like just being, um, and yeah, like even like I remember when I was like actually training for my half marathon and I did, I was kind of following a training plan. And, and again, it was like almost tr I was almost being too rigid with it as well, because I was just kind of like, well, if I don't follow this training plan, I'm not going to get my goal that I want within the half marathon. So it was almost like if I had to like cut a session out or if I didn't have time for the full session, again, I'd be like really annoyed um, because like I felt like I wouldn't be able to actually get to my goal. Yeah, and I suppose the the thing there is, and something that I talk about quite often is, it's the it's because I think the the issue is when when that rigidity comes in from from that training program is when you've tied your self worth or like some kind of moral value to your ability to adhere to that. Yeah, and it's so like how do we stop ourselves from? I'm not. I'm, I mean, hopefully you do have the answer to this because I, I wish I wish somebody would. But it's you. Know, how do we stop ourselves from? tying our self-worth to that goal like how do you notice it and how do you then go oh shit like, i'm i'm putting too much weight on this program right now i need to to back up but like do you think there's a way that you can spot that or like i i kind of struggle with that myself yeah and to be honest i think that's kind of where like rebt all kind of fits into it all so um like the first thing we mentioned was about the rigidity and so um i did say earlier that irrational beliefs are like a key concept of rebt so um essentially um like it's those irrational beliefs that we we do all have as humans we are just quite irrational within ourselves but um so there's four core types of irrational beliefs that have been identified so the, the first one is demandingness so that is when we're very rigid in kind of um saying i must do this or i have to do this and it being like the ultimate thing that we like um we kind of like yeah put that expectation there on ourselves um there's uh the irrational belief of authorizing so just thinking that you know something is absolutely terrible it's 100 percent bad if we can't do it or if yeah something uh, difficult or unexpected comes up um there's the irrational belief of frustration tolerance so not being able to stand something if there's an adversity that arises and then the last one is what is what you just touched on which is self-depreciation so that's where, like you say, we like we end up tying our self-worth into those goals that we're going after. So kind of if the adversity, um, so the difficult situation that comes up is that, you know, for whatever reason, you can't um, stick to your training plan or your exercise routine. Um, then, yeah, people will have beliefs of, like you said earlier, I'm not good enough. So it's kind of like tying into your self-worth or I'm a failure or I'm useless, I'm worthless. Um, so... 
I guess, yeah, I'm just trying to sort of promote that the REBT can help with that because what you do in, in the initial sessions um, is you kind of, um, so a practitioner who's doing REBT would help the client to understand what their own kind of beliefs look like in, in these kind of situations and kind of go through um, sort of an educational process of helping them to see what the cycle looks like so that it, later on they can learn to actually um, what we call dispute those rational beliefs and then come up with their own new effective rational beliefs. Yeah, and it, um, just to touch on the, the self um, de depreciation, yeah. I'd probably pronounce it that wrong. <laughs> um, but, um, uh, it, it reminds me of recently because I, I started taking up um, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu as a way to try and help with my kind of relationship with exercise because mine's always been around like bodybuilding and trying to like you know, get big muscles and it's always been about like body image and the way I mm -hmm. look so I've started trying to take on something that's more performance based and something that I can you know I can treat my body as like a tool to do this thing. Um, but I've already noticed, um, it's, I suppose it ties into what something I'm really interested in, which is the fact that a lot of my, my issues with exercise tied to muscularity and that all ties to masculinity and the kind of issues around that, that I, I still kind of harbor in to some degree. Um, and you know, when I first started jujitsu, one of the things that I like fully put in myself was this is for fun like everything i'm doing is for mm -hmm. fun i don't want to be a world champion jiu-jitsu -er. i don't want to be i'm never going to be in a fight i've never been in a fight i never want to be in a fight like i'm not doing this for any reason other than just for fun um but still there is times where i i lose in training when we're when we're practicing and i still get this tinge of like you know self-worth that like you know it, because i didn't i didn't do well in this thing that i'm not i don't really actually care that much about i'm suddenly less than and i guess that is that kind of like it's a form of that irrational thought like you just because i lost this one training match doesn't mean i'm a bad person but my brain mm -hmm. says oh you're worthless now because you lost to this person yeah, and it, it can be really difficult, um, you know, even, even when you're sort of aware of it, like um, it, those kind of thoughts do just still come up. And especially so when I'm talking about irrational beliefs, they are quite deeply held and sort of quite ingrained within us. So it can take, uh, you know, quite a process to sort of learn to kind of dispute those rational beliefs and um, sort of, yeah, come up with those, those new rational beliefs. Um, but, it you know, at least you, you're sort of rec you're still rec able to recognise it afterwards rather than it actually spiralling out of control. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm in I'm in such a better place with my exercise. I still I think the thing that I, the stage I'm at now is that I think I'm I'm trying to balance because I, I do like exercising and I do get a lot from exercising and I've, I've exercised, you know, a lot for, since I was 15 um, and I'm 26 now. And, and I, I've now got to this point where I'm actually, I've got a semi-decent relationship with it to the point where I'm doing much less than I have done for the last 11 years of my life. And that's, that's being weird for me now because I'm kind of getting the, I'm getting the, uh, like I'm losing the positive benefits of me exercising a lot, but like the good ones. Um, but I'm also gaining the positive benefits of me exercising less like through my like mental health. So trying to balance that has been, it's been weird for me and I'm trying to kind of get there, but I'm going off topic now. I want to kind of get back onto where we were, um, with, so with REBT, um, can you kind of, uh, you kind of gave a, you gave a good description there of these irrational beliefs that under underlie it and, and the way that we kind of, yeah, your first session, you, you unpick how that, that cycle works. Could you give us like a brief overview of what it actually is, like what, what, what it's founded in and that kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll try to do it as succinctly as possible because there's just like, yeah, so much that um, say about REBT and if anyone's interested in it, there's, yeah, there's so many books and um, things out there where you can find out a lot more information. Um, so it's basically a cognitive behavioural approach um, and it was developed in the late 50s and it's based on Stoic philosophy. So one of the quotes that's often used to capture the essence of REBT is from Epictetus um, and he said, men are disturbed not by things but by the view which they take of them. So it's kind of um, basically saying that kind of what 
how we view things, how we view events or how we interpret them is what kind of causes our suffering and our kind of distress and how we respond. Um, so that's where, um, you know, like I said earlier, if we if we can notice those irrational beliefs, that's where we can then change them. So so a lot of people um, usually tend to think that if they're experiencing um, distress or emotional suffering, they usually think that it's because of the situation that they're in um, and that they would feel better if that situation hadn't happened. But REBT challenges that assumption. So um, it, yeah, so it kind of, it, like I say, in the first um, initial sessions, it's kind of all about education in what REBT is. So um, it uses the framework, which is called G-A-B-C-D-E. So the G stands for goals. So it's really important to sort of establish, uh, you know, what those goals are so that you can see kind of what's actually hindering the person from being able to sort of achieve those goals effectively. Um, and then all of the work during the sessions can, can be related back to those goals. And then going through the A, B, C, D, E. Um, so the A stands for adversity. So that would be when either an unexpected event or a challenging situation um, arises. So as I've, I've mentioned quite a bit, usually with exercise addiction, the adversity is you know something that, that comes up that disrupts your exercise routine. Um, and then the B is the beliefs. So that's where those irrational beliefs come in. And then the C is the consequences. So how we generally respond um, in that situation. So it could be how we respond emotionally or behaviorally or even sort of those, those cognitive um, consequences that come up. So yeah, the model is really used to emphasize that it's not the adversity, it's not the event that leads to those consequences, but it's those beliefs um, that we have about that adversity that leads to that distress and that kind of psychological suffering. So like I can just give like a really generic example. Um, so if if I went uh, for a job interview and I didn't get the job, that's that's the adversity. So I've been rejected from from a job role. And so my beliefs in that situation might be I must always do well at interviews or I must always succeed at interviews or if I'm, a, if I'm a failure, if I cannot pass an interview. So those are those kind of irrational beliefs that would come through. And then the consequences, um, you know, would be emotional disturbance. So it could be low mood. I might end up berating myself. I might end up uh, withdrawing from other people, just kind of closing myself off. So in that example, it's that irrational belief, which is um, inflexible and rigid and extreme that's leading to those kind of maladaptive consequences that are not kind of helpful for uh, kind of goal achievement. Um, so, yeah, like I say, it's kind of all based around these irrational beliefs. So, again, in REBT sessions, um, I would kind of uh, educate clients around what those irrational beliefs look like, where they may sort of come up. Um, like I say, the, the main, the primary, the primary rational belief is the demandingness one. So it's those rigid musts that we all have. So again, they're very extreme. Um, I must be able to do this. I must uh, get to the gym. I must pass my driving test. Um, or sometimes we'll use language. And it's quite funny because when I did, when I first did some training in REBT, you, you then start to notice in like all conversations that you're having on a day-to-day -day basis where like people are using this language like all the time. And it, again, it just shows how irrational we are as humans and we kind of yeah like we, we're constantly like sticking to these like rigid beliefs um so yeah the and then um the, that's the abc so like i say we'd kind of go through that with a client and get help them to understand what their own abcs are and then once they've um sort of got a grasp on that and really understand what's going on for them then it comes to the d and the e so the d is like to dispute those irrational beliefs um where we'd use um, specific questions to um, for them to think about, you know, is that belief really logical? Is it really helpful for you? Um, and the E is to help them to come up with a new effective rational belief. So it's not um, it's not necessarily it's not going from negative to positive, but it's more so going from 
um, unhelpful to helpful. Um, and like I say, so irrational beliefs being very inflexible and rigid, whereas rational beliefs are much more flexible and um, yeah, easier to kind of adapt to different situations. So the, these new beliefs that you you develop aren't necessarily just saying everything's all sunshine and rainbows, like you can still recognize that something is crap or something wasn't great and that's that's a bad thing and you can you can feel the negativity but it's not you know the world's going to end everything's bad you're a terrible person everything's over yeah that's completely it so it's sometimes it's literally just kind of um helping them to change the language a little bit that they use so rather than saying like you know i must go to the gym or i must work out five times a week it's more I'd really like to work out five times a week, but I can still cope if, if that doesn't go to plan, that sort of thing. Yeah, it, it makes sense with the kind of stoic, it kind of is all kind of clicked in as, as you were explaining it, how that stoic formula kind of fits in there. So like um, you mentioned Epictetus saying how, you know, it's not, it's not the events that happen to us that affect us. It's the way we view them mm -hmm. is the way that this is how we get affected by them. And that's that belief. And then it leads to those consequences. So if we can come up with a new way of viewing the event, a new way of a new belief, then we can have more positive emotions and more positive ways of, of seeing things. It's all about a different perspective on, on the, it's the same thing happening to you, but yeah. you're getting a different perspective on it. Yeah, absolutely. So it's basically just helping people to be able to think more flexibly so that they can cope better when difficult situations like that arise. Because for for a lot of people, the adversities that they face might be things that do sort of continually come up. They're not necessarily just one off situations. Um, but another thing that mo a lot of REBT research has found is that it doesn't um, just help for um, the specific adversities that they're facing, you know, whether that's to do with exercise addiction or any other kind of issue, but it also helps uh, people just in their kind of day-to-day -day life. So even in the study that I did, um, because the participants were kind of practicing this new kind of rational philosophy as their way of life, they found that it, it also just helped to kind of like improve relationships, improve sort of productivity at work and yeah, just had a, a, a better impact for them overall. Yeah, so it has a, has a wider spread, these kind of beliefs that you come up with affect your wider life, not just um, what's actually going on. So you've already kind of touched on on the results, um, but can you give us a, a rough kind of result of, of how the study went? What kind of what findings did you did you get? Yeah, sure. So I think I mentioned that. So there was three participants that I worked with. Um, so each of them had six sessions of REBT on a weekly basis. And um, so in terms of the quantitative results, so like I said, I um, I asked them to sort of complete some questionnaires before the RBT sessions, whilst they were doing the RBT sessions and also afterwards. So um, their scores for their irrational beliefs, their exercise addiction symptomology and psychological distress um, reduced for all of those participants um, before and after the RBT sessions. And then I did do a follow up two weeks afterwards, um, after all of the sessions finished. And for two out of the three participants, um, their scores did continue to reduce from that point as well. Um, just for one participant, they just went up ever so slightly, but they were still lower than what they were at the start of the um, intervention. Um, and then as part of my research, I also did what's called social validation, which essentially is just understanding more qualitatively how participants found the intervention. So there were some general themes that came up through that as well. So um, all of them felt able to apply this new rational philosophy to all facets of their life, like I just said, which is a really key part of REBT. Um, they also stated that they had learnt new coping skills and that they felt that the delivery of the sessions was clear and the content was easy to understand. Um, and this was important to understand how effective REBT in itself was for the participants um, and, and just made it clear to see that the positive outcomes um, were a result of the intervention um, itself. And then in general, participants were able to just cope much better if they weren't able to stick to their exercise routine um, and they were able to just respond more flexibly. They felt less anxious, less irritable. So those, um, the C, the consequences part of it, 
changed from being sort of maladaptive, ineffective responses to adaptive, effective responses, and they were able to concentrate better throughout the day as well. Amazing. And um, again, just for people who might not know the difference, um, can you explain roughly what you mean by it changed from maladaptive to adaptive? Uh, yeah, sure. So, um, so a maladaptive consequence, uh, you know, would be um, when when somebody's suffering emotionally and perhaps um, doing behaviours that are not effective for them. So it might be that they. Um, so, in fact, if I take an example from the study, so um, at the start, if if somebody couldn't get out for their run first thing in the morning, she would say that she um, she became quite anxious. She was feeling feeling guilty all, the, all day. Um, she'd you know she'd be thinking all day about whether she would be able to get out for a run later on. So that anxiety that came on kind of kept increasing throughout the day as well. So that's a sort of a mal maladaptive emotional response because um, obviously it's going to sort of prevent you from being able to get on with your day to day activities and in, in the best way that you can um she also mentioned yeah being the anxiety meant that she was more irritable with colleagues she'd be quite snappy um she'd get sort of frustrated quite easily so so yeah those maladaptive responses are all kind of um yeah things that we um perhaps wouldn't want to be actually doing if we're trying to um you know get towards um our goals and a healthy way of living Amazing. Thank you. And um, so the adaptive version of that would be something where people can actually like adapt it to is it, like I always assumed that adaptive meant that like you could adapt it to your situation and it could be changed. Is that kind of the, the difference there? Yeah, in a way. So um, I guess a more adaptive response is something that's going to going to be helping you to, to actually get sort of closer towards your goals. Um, so so some of the goals that that people had set for themselves were, you know, to, to be able to actually respond better when when their exercise routine is disruptive. So, um, yeah, so an, a more adaptive response would would be to um, to not necessarily not feel anxious, but to not let that anxiety kind of take over and and cause kind of um, unhealthy behaviors with, with others around you so the the adaptive response is more to be able to just be able to get on with your kind of day-to-day -day routine um without any um sort of further negative consequences amazing thank you and it's great that it worked so well and i know there's the one person who it went slightly up but it was still lower than it was beforehand so that's yeah. that's definitely positive um and you mentioned previously that your your research was on women and that there was um, a study previously that had been done on men too. Um, I, I, my kind of research interest that I'm moving into with my PhD is looking in, into like men's experiences with muscularity stuff. So I'm really interested in men's experiences with this kind of thing. I'm wondering, is, was there any differences that you noticed with kind of women's responses compared to men's? Or was there, were there any differences there or anything else that stood out? Um, in terms of just kind of looking directly at the results, they were actually quite comparable. So, um, yeah, pretty much um, the results from um, the study that was done in male exercises, which was by um, a guy called Altar and other colleagues, um, he also found that um, REBT, um, sort of six sessions of REBT, helps to reduce the exercise addiction symptomology the, and the irrational beliefs. Um, so basically what it kind of tells us is that we know that the intervention does, that we know that REBT does work with both males and females who are experiencing exercise addiction. Um, but what I would like to do is sort of continue the research further to understand more about any gender difference that might actually be present. So as part of the next stage of my sport and exercise psychology training, um, for the research element, I'm going to try to actually kind of explore other factors that could be related to sort of why REBT is successful um, for people at risk of exercise addiction. So I'll probably try and get a sample of both males and females so that I can really kind of explore um, any differences that might be apparent. Oh, that sounds amazing. Please, please keep me in, in like up to date with how that goes because that sounds really interesting. Because uh, I am I I think you know, part of what I'm wanting to do with my my PhD is a is around um, 
I'm looking at like the care available for men who have muscularity oriented issues. So that, that encompasses like kind of exercise addiction or compulsive exercise around being more muscular and trying to be for muscularity. And I really want to look at kind of the care available and also how it relates to help seeking behavior. Um, and something I'm really interested in is the relationship with masculinity and how masculinity plays in, um, especially for, for men with the, the kind of the research looking into muscularity tends to show that men feel the men who experience it tend to feel that they're not masculine enough. And then they, they take on these behaviors as a way to prove it to themselves or whatever. Um, and then we know that masculinity links to a lack of help seeking and something that I'm really interested in is if the forms of care that we use aren't necessarily tailored towards these people who think they need to rely on masculinity. And I was, you know, as soon as I saw repped and you, and sorry, re beta, I've just been calling it repped <laughs> to myself. So I'm sorry about that. Um, but, um, as soon as I read that that was like based in stoicism and stoicism is quite, I think it's, it may be incorrectly linked to the way we see it in, which we can talk about in a bit, but, um, it is often linked with masculinity. I thought it, you know, this could be a perfect way of, of reaching out to that population of men who aren't seeking help because they feel like it's not masculine enough or, you know, it's not something that they, they can see themselves in. But if we say, oh, we've got this other form that's this, you know, it's engrossed in stoicism, we can help, still help that group. And um, what do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think because um, a lot of it, and again, it comes down to some of those like self-depreciation beliefs, how people sort of view themselves as a result of something that's happened. Um, and a lot of it, um, I guess as well, the like, identity comes into it as well. So like, yeah, if, if you're somebody that kind of views yourself as, as uh, and yeah, I guess what, um, what being masculine actually like means to people. And I guess, you know, traditionally, you know, we, we had quite stereotypical male and, and gen uh, male and female gender specific roles. So, um, you know, a lot of that is, is still kind of present in society. And like you say, sort of men wanting to, to get stronger, get bigger muscles to, to feel more masculine. So, yeah, I definitely think that, um, there is another piece of research that where where RBT has been applied um, to. Uh, I think it was actually a mixed sample, but it was for people with um, muscle. Uh, what is it called? Muscle dysmorphic disorder. Um, yeah, so that that produced um, quite positive. Yeah, results yeah, muscle dysmorphia, well. muscle dysmorphic disorder. Oh, amazing. Yeah, I think I think I actually read it, but I read it a while ago. So I forget what <laughs> what happened with it. Um, and I'm very tired from a long sure. day. So my brain's not not running at full capacity right now. Um, <laughs> uh, but I am noticing the time and I'm, I'm going to kind of move us on. So I don't want to keep you for too long. So it's the devil's advocate. <laughs> Oh, I love the jingle. And um, for the people listening at home, I now play the jingle live for the person who's who's I'm talking to. So they get to experience it in all its glory without me having to edit it in at the end. Um, so Sarah, hopefully, Sarah, you heard that. Yeah. Um, otherwise, it didn't work, in which case I'm just talking about <laughs> nothing right now, which is embarrassing. But <laughs> OK, great. You heard it. Um, so today's Devil's Advocate question is um, REB. T is based in stoic principles um, but we hear so much about the problem with stoicism and it leading to this lack of help seeking behavior and um, you know with, with men like ignoring their emotions and, and kind of and you know not seeking help because of that um you know what won't rebt just further ingrain these issues then so I think that there can there can be this misconception that um, stoicism is about being emotionless, uh, which is not really the case. So you can still feel those strong emotions, but it's about choosing to act on them in, in a more appropriate way. So in a more rational kind of way. Um, so just to change the way that we think about situations, we can change how we perceive our emotions as well. Um, and sort of one of the um, points of REBT that I didn't necessarily touch on is um, that it does kind of, um, it recognises that negative emotions are just a part and parcel um, and quite an important part of human life. Um, so the aim of REBT is not to change people's, of, uh, people's emotions from negative to positive, but more so from, from unhealthy to healthy. So it does actually use the terms um, 
and which uh, get abbreviated to UNE and HNE. So UNE would be unhealthy negative emotions and HNE is healthy negative emotions. Um, so again, that's often talked about in REBT sessions to help clients to understand that it is actually quite normal to experience negative emotions, especially when bad things happen, um, but that we can do that in a, in a healthy way to lead to a more adaptive response. So a, a response that's going to be more effective in, you know, get um, living a life that's going to help you to sort of get towards your goals um, whereas it's those those unhealthy negative emotions that that can lead to sort of that self-defeating behavior and sort of just getting stuck in that cycle over and over again so when when doing rebt with somebody we'd sort of try to recognize what unhealthy negative emotions are sort of appearing for them uh, you know when they're faced with their adversities and then get them to think about you know how things could look if actually they were able to to deal with things in a more rational way and how those emotions could look healthier so it's not necessarily about um going from sort of feeling sad to then just feeling really happy but it's more about just changing the intensity of that emotion so not feeling sort of extremely depressed um and and just being able to sort of manage it so you know like for example if if somebody close to you passes away you wouldn't expect someone to feel happy about it you'd still expect them to have that negative emotion but it's then how they deal with that emotion that's sort of what's important and and trying to help them to to think about the rational way in which they can sort of move on from that yeah and it's something that and when i kind of wrote this question it was kind of what i was leading wanted to lead on to was the way that because i've, I've recently started reading about stoicism in like a preparatory fashion for my my phd um and one of the things that first kind of shocked me was that all the things that the stoics said weren't what i thought they were going to say based off of how society mm -hmm. talks about stoicism and the idea of this like stoic person who has no emotions and, and you know ignores all negative emotions and things and that, you know none of them were mm -hmm. saying that so i was like you know why does this why is this a thing um and yeah i think yeah i think you know as, as you said i think it's um more of a misconception i think it's been construed and changed over time and now we when we use the word stoicism it's like a mistranslation it's not actually what stoicism was about or is about um so yeah i think that's really really important thank you for thank you for answering the the devil's advocate so well um okay sarah we're going to move to the final okay. three um so every person i bring on the podcast i ask three final questions to um are you uh, ready yep <laughs> okay question one is name a person that inspires you um it's yeah it's probably no surprise that i've actually chosen um a sports person i was actually trying to like yeah think it was quite difficult for me to think about who um so yeah i'm, I'm generally quite inspired by people who are kind of able to push through barriers and reach new heights despite the odds being against them um so yeah there's like a lot of athletes that kind of Fit that bill um and yeah a lot of athletes that inspire me due to their determination and resilience to succeed and achieve their dreams um again probably one of the reasons why i decided to pursue a career in sport and exercise psychology so my answer for this is um chrissy wellington so she is um a or was um the world ironman uh, champion um and yeah i've just i've listened to a lot of interviews that she's done and just whenever she talks i just really feel inspired by her achievements but more importantly like the journey that she's taken to reach those achievements um which i just think is really fascinating and incredible um and yeah i just like the fact that she's very much like sort of process focused and just constantly just thinking about what she's doing so kind of one day after the next rather than just like you know um you know what what goal am i going to achieve next so yeah like i say she was the world ironman champion so she won the first championship title less than a year after turning professional so again that like i just kind of think about not that i i think i would ever turn professional but i just think like how amazing is it that somebody can like yeah just be able to like get up to that standard in such a quick time um and yeah so it just makes me kind of 
every time I hear this, I just kind of think, well, any anything is possible and we shouldn't let fear sort of hold us back from doing what we really want. Um, and she's also just leaving such a great legacy uh, behind that she, so now she's continuing to advocate for better opportunities for people to be more physically active in a healthy way. Um, and yeah, particularly sort of breaking down barriers like where health inequalities exist. Um, so yeah, that's my inspirational person. Amazing, thank you. Um, the second question is, name a phase of your life that you didn't like at the time, but looking back, you know that positives have come from it. Um, yeah, it was quite difficult, again, to um, think about sort of a specific time here. I guess, um, sort of generally, I found my teenage years quite difficult. Um, I struggled to fit in, um, wasn't quite sure of who I was, so I was struggling quite a bit with identity. Um, at home, I guess I felt restricted and held back. I feel like parents were sort of quite controlling and I didn't always kind of get to, to do the things that I wanted to do or make my own choices. And I was sort of, yeah, almost sort of sometimes felt quite stuck there. And I had, as a result, had quite low self-esteem, definitely times where I felt really depressed and just kind of felt like, you know, I didn't want to kind of live that way anymore. Um, but looking back on it, yeah, definitely lots of, positives that came out from it like it helped me to develop resilience in the end it helped me to actually kind of search for myself so when I ended up leaving home and went to university I just yeah like I just had like ultimate freedom and it just really helped me to become more independent and to sort of understand what things I like what what my passions are and like yeah who I wanted to be friends with um, and I guess I just I became quite self-reliant and i'd say i've probably kind of gone on sort of quite a journey like since then as well in in learning more about my myself and sort of developing my own self-awareness in terms of sort of how i was back when i was a teenager and um you know i kind of i kept i kept things in my head quite a lot so i kept like replaying things and i kept sort of blaming other people or external situations for how I felt and, you know, not being able to do certain things, but I kind of realized that, um, that actually, yeah, the, all of those things did just shape who I was. And actually just by accepting that, you know, that was a, just a part of my life and a part of my journey has just now helped me to be able to, I guess, cope a little bit better when I am sort of struggling, um, at, at, at the present amazing thank you and uh, people who are regular listeners will know i always say that this is my my favorite question the second one because it's always nice to, to i think for, especially for people listening um at home it's nice to hear you know someone going through something that they didn't like and something they struggled with and then they can look back and say actually all these great things are coming from it so you know someone's listening at home you, you know there might be some young person listening at home who's living with their parents and maybe struggling in a similar way and recognizing that actually it's probably going to help you in the future as you get older and you're going to gain things from it or you know there is different things that come that can come from it so thank you for no sharing worries. that sarah uh, okay and the final question which for the avid listeners um will know i've slightly changed um because of a comment someone made on one of the podcasts um I, if anyone knows who it was give me a tweet or a or a message and i will uh, give you a respect <laughs> um <laughs> so i slightly changed it uh, because of someone's comment um and i prefer it this way now uh, so the new one is name a phrase or word that changed your life i'm really intrigued to know what this question used to be are you going to share <laughs> It used to be, um, oh God, I should probably know this. Um, it used to be, uh, name a phrase to live oh, by. Okay. Um, but then somebody, again, I will not, who will remain name, nameless until someone can, can claim it um, and earn my respect. Um, <laughs> it, it used to be that they, uh, that, it, the, yeah, sorry, they said that um, they didn't, it wasn't great because it's it's not it's kind of a, it's the idea of like there being like this ideal way of sure. living your life and actually it should be more open-ended that there isn't just one way to live your life it should be different and um, so Fair now enough. it's now it's different now it's a phrase slash word okay. that changed your life um yeah so the phrase that i've chosen is um a buddhist saying um which is sort of um the philosophy that i kind of try and live by um and it's um pain is inevitable suffering is optional um so 
yeah well I, I don't really remember when I first heard this um but it's it's really stuck with me ever since um and I think more and more so as, as the years have gone on and um I think it just helped me to realize that I don't need to suffer from any pain that I've experienced like especially like in my past so going back to again it's like those teenage years um yeah so I, th I think there was a period of time where I would just con continue to uh, experience like awful emotions and not be able to kind of let go of things and not be able to kind of get over things um but once I had this phrase it just kind of stuck with me and it's just been a way to help me accept that um like I said earlier you know n negative things do happen and and you know I guess we all go through life and we all, all experience difficulties um you know at, at different uh ends of the scale um but it's just really helped me to accept and let go of negative experience especially things that have been holding me back uh, from living my life the way that I want to so you know I used to have like a lot of fear of speaking to people or going out to kind of social places and yeah I've just kind of um, sort of learned to realize that um, that those things you know might kind of hold me back from from the person that I want to be so yeah pain is inevitable suffering is optional so when I basically when I when I feel pain and and usually I'm talking about emotional pain um but yeah like if I'm if I'm feeling quite upset about something I'll try to just kind of think back to this and think okay well this doesn't need to be long lasting like how how can I sort of you know uh be able to actually respond to this kind of effectively and, and just still uh be able to kind of live my life amazing thank you and it kind of it kind of um aligns with that stoic idea at yeah. the end, doesn't it like the idea of um viewing viewing the events that pain's gonna happen um so yeah it's kind of perfectly summed up thank you sarah okay. um we're done Lovely. sarah uh, i hope you've enjoyed yeah, the pod it's, how's it yeah, gone it's been really great like just chatting about this stuff um over again um because yeah like i said i finished my research sort of last september and have gone back to revisit it because i'm actually in the process of, of actually trying to get it published um but yeah like i remember not wanting to revisit at all because at the time it was just like such an intense period for me like um yeah like i said i was doing my masters alongside my job and like um we talked about perfectionistic tendencies before and yeah like i was um putting a lot of pressure on myself um i knew i'd like got quite a good good grade up to that point so i kept saying to myself like if this dissertation lets me down then like that's just going to be the worst thing ever so again i needed to use a little bit of rbt there but yeah it was a really like intense time for me when i finished and i just wanted to like almost completely forget about it but I know it'd be good to sort of go back and revisit it and just think about how I want to actually mm. extend that research. So it's just it's just been great to sort of talk about it again, and um, I'm just yeah really passionate about um, what I've, what I've been um, researching. And that passion comes through, and you know I really appreciate you being passionate and, and coming and talking to you about it, especially when it's difficult. It's almost like an extra added number two of the phase of your life that you didn't like, but <laughs> yeah. now you can see positives coming from it. So that's always nice to know. Um, and I want to um, say a massive thank you to the people listening at home, as always, for making it all the way through one of the podcasts. Thank you so much for listening to that episode. Here at Maya Minds, we're trying to raise awareness for all the things that we speak about in this podcast. So please, if you can, give it a share. Each and every one of you has the potential to help us with that. Also, if you want to check out myminds.com, please do. You can see all our social media things on there and we'd love to have you contributing more as a part of our community. Thank you.